0: WCBN
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Good afternoon. Welcome to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio with me John Barr and Dan Murphy. Um, welcome, John, Thank Dan.
3: You. Thank you. Great to be here.
2: It's, well, it's great to see you. And I should say, we're taping the show. It's the 10th of February, 2020. Um, you're in town. With the release of your book, "Start by Believing," Larry Nassar's crimes, the institutions that enabled him, and the brave women who stopped a monster, uh, out with Hatchet Books. Um, a quick thanks to Anna Hall for sending us uh, copies of the book. So, you're in town to talk about "Start by Believing." This is a this you've written the book, but this is a story that you've been reporting on since. Is it? Was it 2016 when you when and maybe, John, for you, maybe even a bit before with with reporting on USA Gymnastics? or Well,
0: the, the honest truth is neither Dan nor I really reported on gymnastics previ- prior to our experience with this book. Um, my first experience with this story was in, I guess, late September, mid to late September of 2016. So the, the Indianapolis Star came out with an expose where a trio of reporters did months of reporting, and they came out with this huge investigation which exposed that USA Gymnastics was getting files on coaches who were accused of sexual abuse and essentially taking those reports and sticking them in a drawer at the headquarters in in Indianapolis. They weren't reporting them to the proper authorities. And after that initial story... Uh, and they documented that this was a pattern that had existed over years after that initial story, Rachel Dan Hollander, the first gymnast former gymnast to come forward and publicly accuse Larry Nasser of sexual assault, she reached out to the newspaper and then they wrote the first story about Larry nasser and It was a short time after that that we got involved and and started to do some reporting of our own and and we quickly realized that this thing was mushrooming into a a massive story
2: and to a really big story which actually reminds me you know I'll read your short bios first so we can contextualize where you're coming from when you found this sure. um this story John Barr has worked as an investigative reporter for ESPN since 2003 in 2019 his coverage of the Larry Nassar scandal was honored with a Peabody award and the IRE Sports Investigations Award. In 2011, his report on human trafficking during the 2010 World Cup in South Africa won a national Edward R. Murrow Award. Prior to joining ESPN, Barr produced and reported stories for the National Geographic Channel for Court TV and for more than a decade in local television. A native of London, Ontario, Canada, he now lives just outside of Philly. Dan Murphy is an investigative reporter at ESPN. He was honored with a Peabody Award, and the. So, am I pronouncing this right? Is it the IRE? Is it the IRE? IRE, It is the. Okay, investigative (laughs)
0: reporters and editors.
2: Things you should do before you go on air, everyone. Okay. (laughs) And the IRE Sports Investigations Award in 2019. His courage. Uh, his courage.
3: He is courageous. He is courageous. <laughs> I've read the book,
2: both Dan and John. I, I worked done.
3: with John for three years. It took a lot of courage. <laughs> it, it, sure it, t- it. it takes
2: that. His coverage of college athletics and broader issues in the world of sports has appeared on ESPN's digital, television, and print outlets since 2014. Based now in Michigan, Ann Arbor, actually, right, Yeah, that's, this is home. Murphy is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and Northwestern University's Medal School of Journalism. So, so coming from sports as, as, and, and serious investigative reporting as well, and then we get to 2016, um, so how did you decide to take what was then became a couple of years of, of reporting to a book, Start by Believing?, it's so like how when when did that moment happen for you?
3: So I think a couple of hearings of of Larry Nasser made big national international even news in January 2018. John and I were talking and thought that there was enough people that that were only aware of that story as when it became big time news and didn't understand how much work and perseverance and, and needed to go in to get to that moment and how unlikely it was to reach that moment and also just that that the story hadn't been told in its entirety. No one had put it from start to finish together. And we, we thought it was a story that deserved that. You know, we, we were both lo- wanted to write a book at some point in our careers. And this story was just too important to, to not take on that challenge of doing it for this one.
0: Yeah. There had been so many developments that were newsworthy in and of themselves. And we realized that there was just a much larger story to tell. And, you know, not only was it something that we wanted to do just from a selfish standpoint for to achieve a professional goal, it was also something we felt like it was important to do. and it came we realized that knowing no one else was going to do it. Uh, I mentioned the Indianapolis Star, their wonderful reporting that really exposed Larry Nasser without this, that initial article by that newspaper, we might not be sitting here today. He might still very well be sexually assaulting girls and young women in a, in his clinic office at Michigan State University, which is horrible to think about, but it's true um
2: or for the Olympics, yeah the right? I mean, my goodness right.
0: yeah, uh but you know they did the reporting uh we managed to sort of suss out that the that they were not interested in pursuing a book, which was a good sign for us uh because frankly, if they would have been, we probably would have. Stepped aside. I mean, you know, they. Uh, it's not like they had any kind of like exclusive rights to this story, but just out of respect for the the exceptional work that they'd done, uh, I think we probably wouldn't be wouldn't have written this book. And it, it it became apparent to us that nobody else was writing it, and this is a story that needed to be told, and we felt like we were well positioned to do it.
2: And and as you mentioned, Dan too, to tell the story of the years that had come before too because when well john you mentioned yeah, right. that that rachel um read the story in the Indi- indianapolis star um and sent an email then to the investigative reporters there yep um but she was it was like you know 16 years ago like she'd been waiting
3: like yeah. perhaps 16 years yeah, or so. so we wanted to go all to- the way back to the really the 70s is when we start our book with the culture of gymnastics and how that Eventually created an environment that Larry Nasser was able to take advantage of for so long. And could,
2: could you say something about the culture? Because it, it was with coaches. It was with sure, yeah. It was like, it was famous very, names, yeah. yeah. And
3: it was, you know, Bella and Marta Caroli are, are the two that I think are synonymous with USA Gymnastics and gold medals and the success that the U.S. has had in the Olympic level for three, four decades now. Um, And and when they came over from Romania and established themselves uh, early in the 80s as the elite gymnastics coaches in America, a lot of the coaches... um, elsewhere around the country that wanted to get that level and wanted to get their gymnasts to the level that someone like Mary Lou Retton, who won gold in, in Los Angeles in 1984, they looked at the Carolis and said, this is what it takes. This is what we have to do. And they were very demanding, demeaning, even coaches. The, the way they treated their gymnast was... Uh, you know, at least borderline abuse, if not very plainly abuse in in some instances and uh, physical abuse and, and verbal abuse and that type of thing.
2: True on the state level, too, because you write about in Michigan, closer to home, Geddert. Is yeah, that John his Getter. name? Yep, John, John Geddert, who was also um, a in relationship with Larry Nasser as well right, right. So yeah,
3: and, and that's part of you know coaches like John Getter were all over the country and they were taking their cues from this is what it takes to get to that level and it was you have to be relentless on train relentlessly hard you have to be cruel in a lot of ways this is what they felt this is not in any way right right but this is just sort of the ethos of or the the culture of the sport at that time was you felt that they had you had to be sort of cruel and you had to be uh, so many weird endless stories about um you know thirteen fourteen year old girls being shamed for their weight and these are thirteen or fourteen year old girls that are already bone thin and exercising six or seven hours a day and um, you know creating all kinds of issues on that front that, that really persisted through the nineties um, but but that was the culture where Larry Nasser found this safe harbor for his abuse and that he was the good guy among all of these bad guys. You know, he was the good cop and, and all of these coaches were the bad cop. And he was the one that this could turn to for more of an empathetic ear and somebody who would take care of them or sneak them a sack, snack when they were not allowed to eat for, for very much of a day when they're training. And uh, that's how he earned their trust. And that's how he earned the trust of their parents and their families to allow him to to have this facade for so long and get away with what he was doing. Okay.
2: such a manipulator yeah for us it was about
0: really understanding the those historical underpinnings of the sport and and also we we wanted to try to document and remind people that there had been attempts to expose those sort of that dark underbelly of the sport there was a, a, a groundbreaking book written in it was released in 1995 called little girls in pretty boxes written by Joan Ryan who was sort of a trailblazer in her own right. She was one of the first women to write a sports column for a major daily newspaper in the United States. She worked for the San Francisco Examiner, later the Chronicle. And she she did a story about abuses in figure skating and gymnastics, and she just couldn't believe what she saw uh, and convinced her editors to let her take a year off and write a book. And that caused a, a big stir at the time. She wrote about Bella Caroli's... What she called stunning track record of producing gymnasts with eating disorders. There was a horrible case of a of a former a would be Olympian named Christy Henrick who died uh, of anorexia, and she was. I think less than 60 pounds when she eventually passed away. It's just a horrible story. And you
2: include that. We in include all of start that. start by believing yeah. this is all part and, and, of and the so, culture. And so the That's warning reviewed. signs
0: were there. There was an Oprah uh, episode about it. There were 60-minute there were stories. There was a, one of those cheesy TV made-for-TV made for movies called Little Girls in Pretty Boxes. So there was all this attention paid to these abuses within the sport in the mid-'90s. And then nothing really changed like that there what happened essentially is there were some disappointing finishes by the women's national team at worlds in the late nineties and bella crowley who'd retired after the after the nineteen ninety six olympics was coaxed out of retirement asked to come back and be the director of the women's artistic program and essentially he was given more control not less more control even after there'd been this very public vetting of his past abuses
3: and we should say there are, you know, to, this is the kind of stuff that we felt we wanted to add to the conversation. There are a handful of other books that have been written about this and some great shows and podcasts that the Michigan Radio NPR did did a terrific podcast. Believed. Yeah, terrific. Yes. And Rachel Den Hollander, who's featured in our book, wrote her own memoir. And it was a very personal, moving and, and terrific story that anybody should read that's interested in what it's actually like for a sexual assault survivor to, to come publicly through this process. And then a couple other things out there as well that, that, that are all very valuable valuable but we thought what was missing was starting from the very beginning and explaining the culture and explaining some of the institutional reasons why this was allowed to go on for so long.
0: Yeah, and you know we talked like we talked to Joan Ryan and when she, when the Larry Nasser scandal happened, she was heartbroken. She just she said she's just felt absolute fury.
2: One of the chapter titles. Yeah, I mean she, 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 she just
0: was enraged that so little had changed. And, um, this powerlessness, yeah, a, 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 but it wasn't just that. I mean, there are actually, there, and we also write about, there was a very well-intentioned program in the mid nineties for a time. USA gymnastics actually did adopt an athlete wellness program. And they had this woman named Nancy Thies Marshall, who was a former Olympian. She was an Olympian in 1972. They put her in charge of it and they started paying attention to things like nutrition. Uh, they started paying attention to eating disorders And um, she, in the late 90s, came up with this fairly innovative idea. It was a mentorship program where an existing national team member would be paired with a former national team member, the idea being that the former member would serve sort of like a big sister. Because, you know, the national team member who was in might have been in an abusive environment with her coach might not feel comfortable confiding in the coach might not feel like her parents were willing to help her but maybe but she this mentor. but maybe she didn't right. confide in somebody who'd been through the battles before yeah, yeah. Uh, and she wonders what might have happened if that mentorship program had stuck cuz it was cut because of budget it was cut because of budget or at least ostensibly yeah. Yeah, of budget yeah it, it was cut because of budget we can't we can't draw a straight line and say that the Crowleys didn't want the mentorship program but there were There was a quote from uh, Marta Caroli in the early 2000s. Um, There's a wonderful reporter named Scott Reed who covers amateur athletics for the Orange County Register. And he's been writing about abuses in amateur athletics for decades. And uh, he got a quote from Marta Caroli uh, in the early 2000s where she essentially said, said, we don't need any help with our athletes and sort of dismissed the athlete wellness program as something that wasn't necessary. Well, if the mentorship program had hung around, Nancy Thies Marshall wonders what right. a gymnast had confided in one of the former national team members. Would this have been stopped earlier? It's just one more of the what ifs.
2: Right. And after reading Start by Believing… It seems likely that that would have happened because when you see some of um, the girls, the young women making connections, it's when they've they're seeing each other at a reunion like years later and suddenly putting pieces together or um, riding in the back seat of a van on yeah. the way to an event where, you know, the, so. We, yeah, we, we know from experience that victims of child sexual
0: abuse generally don't disclose until decades later. It's they don't come to the realization until often decades later. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it was just that's just one more indication. And so, as Dan mentioned, you know, we felt like that was a missing component in all of this. You know, they're actually it's funny because USA Gymnastics just announced that they were appointing a vice president of athlete wellness. And they were touting her as the first vice president of athlete wellness. Well, Nancy Thies Marshall was the vice chair of athlete wellness so, in the mid nineties. So it's just wordplay. Right. The reality is the organization actually started down the road to you right. know, launching a fairly uh, well-intentioned athlete wellness program and they nixed it. It does seem. And so what, what happens when you do that? Well, you get Larry Nasser.
2: Allowing to exist. Yeah. Over decades. I'm
0: not saying that would have stopped it, but there are a lot of people who wonder if it might have.
2: Yeah. Um, so let's talk about telling the story sure. and the structure of it, um, because you talked with, I think, over 150 survivors. Uh, or, uh, well,
3: survivors, or, lawyers, other uh, lawyers yeah. and police people, and uh, advocates and people who are involved in the story, coaches, tons of people like that. Yeah,
2: and, and so but but you choose three women to to shape the story, to tell the like to frame it. Could you talk about that?
3: Sure, yeah. That was one of the, the tough decisions we had to make when we were on the, the structural level of figuring this out. If We had hundreds of stories at this point that were all worthy of being told. So how do we, you can't write a book with 100 different stories in it. So how do we narrow that down? And we we picked three women that we thought were were both really integral in this story coming to light because of what they did and, and they stepped forward. And, um, you know, it was Rachel Denholler was the first woman publicly to come forward and say something which takes an incredible amount of courage. Jamie Dantra, one of the other women, was the first to file a, a civil lawsuit, and she spoke up, and she was really the first Olympic-level gymnast who spoke up on a regular basis. And then the third w- was a woman named Kyle Stevens, who uh, was the first woman to testify at a, a preliminary hearing for Larry Nasser and, and the first to uh, lead off this long, uh, more than a week-long process of the sentencing hearings that a lot of people paid attention to. And Kyle was... a an, very important part of bringing him to justice because she was not a gymnast she was a family friend and so that would sort of took away a lot of the excuses that nasser used to explain what he was doing because he never saw her as a patient so
2: could you could you uh, just for a quick moment i want to go back to how you you shaped it through these three women uh the characters um but so could you just address that? Like, because that's one of the things that made the Nassar using um, osteopathy um, rare techniques. Um, could you address that sure. a little bit just so that listeners know what you're talking
3: about? Sure. Dan. So he had a, um, a unique uh, nefarious cover story, one, one that was incredibly successful for him, if you want to call that. And, uh, success isn't the right word. You don't want well, to put a good well, word gave on it. he but...
2: PowerPoints on it, seemingly. in yeah, police yeah. When he'd been called into right. police so, offices so, yeah, at he, MSU. So he, he
0: talked about pelvic floor adjustments as a, a sort of an innov- innovative way to treat all sorts of issues that gymnasts routinely dealt with. And the reality of the situation is there are this this is an actual procedure. I mean, we should point that out, that there is an actual procedure where there will be intravaginal treatments to treat certain things like interstitial cystitis, which is uh, a very painful bladder disease. But the reality is those treatments are never done on minors. They're done only in instances where there's an adult chaperone present, they're done when there's a very clear explanation of what it is you're doing. Uh, the notion that this would happen uh, from a guy who, by the way, wasn't even a doctor when he started doing this. Uh, he, he was behind, a volunteer. Uh, yeah, but he, he was, was a, a volunteer athletic trainer. The idea that this would happen and that somebody would do this without parental permission on a minor, uh, it just it violates every Medical accepted medical protocol and, and the, the fact of the matter is it 's sexual assault it, it, it doesn 't constitute good medicine, it constitutes sexual assault, but he and was so-
3: able to use his position as a, as a doctor and a well-respected renowned doctor because of his position with the Olympics to whenever someone did raise a concern, he was able to dispel that by saying, no, look, I'm, I'm the expert on this particular treatment, especially with gymnasts, And this is what you need. And he had all kinds of gymnasts who had been incredibly famous and successful, who he had treated and, and had convinced that he was helping them. Um, sort of having his back on this kind of thing. And, and so when a, a parent would raise an issue or when a, uh, an athlete would raise an issue and say, hey, I'm not sure if this is right, any of his patients would, um, he would explain, no, this is this is what I'm doing. This is uh, totally explained it away to police officers and other investigators over a series of 20 years of people raising concerns. And he always had an answer for it because he had this cover story of being an expert physician and he knew what he was doing in that area of the body. And um, that, was, that was a big part of, of how he got away Away with this for so long
2: and it's, it's interesting because I feel like if people that's another reason why start by believing is such a necessary book to be out there to show the scope of the story because I think it, even with the national um, headlines until we got to the trial perhaps I think there were people in the medical community maybe who, who did wonder perhaps like because people who do use it as, as a medical practice
0: but well, that's, the, why, that's why Kyle Stevens was such a critical witness because I, yeah. Kyle Stevens was not a patient
2: but really quick before you say that yeah. John but also like a medical practitioner would never do this procedure unless others have everything had been um, everything else had been tried in the well, medical front and not, they would use gloves like there are many different absolutely. things that you have a chaperone we, and explain and so, it better uh, yes, yeah there's a lot of yes. things he not, not only properly. would they not do it larry
0: nasser when there was an investigation by michigan state police in 2014 when another survivor amanda Thomashow, came forward he was told not to do it he was told you are in a in a bullet point email from his boss the now disgraced dean former dean of the school of osteopathic medicine william strample he was told no skin-to-skin t- contact adult chaperone present." V- uh, very clear explanation to patients of what it is you're doing, and he basically ignored all of that. And they, that sin- they later discovered that from 2014 to 2016, when he was ultimately dismissed by the school, that he continued to sexually assault patients. He continued to penetrate girls and young women behind closed doors, without their, uh, without any other adult in the room, without gloves. Uh, he continued to sexually assault. Girls and young women.
2: And so you mentioned, you mentioned Kyle Stevens and why her, her story was such a necessary part um, of the trial as well, like getting him to justice, yeah, so- as well as the book.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Kyle was was really generous with her time and, and letting us tell her story, uh, which, you know, along with everybody else, we greatly appreciate. But with, when the first few weeks of the police looking into this story, as the complaints started to come flooding in after this Indianapolis Star story, all of them were a doctor-patient relationship. And Kyle was a family friend or her family was friends with the Nassars and she was abused in his home um, without any ever seeing him for any type of medical reason and that changed the scope of the case that the police could try to investigate and from starting
2: when, when she was six years old. Yeah,
3: incredibly like young. Like a hide and seek. Really really horrific type of Yeah. yeah and uh, she had a, a tough go of it for a long time trying to, to explain that to her parents and uh her story. Because stories, they didn't
2: believe her. They didn't. They did not.
3: No, they didn't. And it was uh that was I mean she's she's incredibly brave in getting beyond that. Um but but yeah, that I think that we uh go through her story a bit in the book. And, and part of it was because it was just such a gripping example of, of why it's so important to take any claim like this seriously, because so many people ignored what she was trying to say. Um, but because she never saw him as a patient, the case suddenly shifted from one that was a, a complicated medical malpractice. You're going to have doctors on the stands talking about where it's okay for a doctor to do this and not do this. And suddenly, because she had she wasn't in that type of a scenario, um, it was much easier to explain that he was doing everything else as sexual abuse because he had this history of sexual abuse with her.
0: I would say there were two critical things that actually tipped the balance and, and, and made people, even those who may have clung to some support of Larry Nassar when he was initially dismissed by the university, there were really two turning point moments. One was Kyle Stevens' testimony and the other was the discovery of the child pornography uh, well, on his home computers, yeah, his yes, drives. yeah. Well, when they, yeah. when they discovered that there were thousands of Im- images of child pornography on his computers, uh, you know, those people in the in the community who didn't want to believe the worst about Larry Nassar, suddenly believed the worst about Larry Nassar, and many women who were questioning whether they were really sexually assaulted came to a new realization that yes indeed that he was touching them for his own sexual gratification and you know that's got to be i mean i can't even imagine what that's like to come to that realization uh, but yeah kyle was a kyle kyle is a hero and they they all are yeah. but but for her to um, not only deal with what she dealt with individually but i mean her family the repercussions for her family her father uh, who she had a contentious relationship with, who didn't believe her, uh, for until men- he
2: did. Until
0: not- he did. Until he did, and he had other health complications and other issues he was dealing with. But ultimately, he died by suicide. And uh, and Dan, you know, spoke with Kyle directly, and and I believe
3: she, yeah, she it was, concedes she, that that played a role. She said it was, his, a, his you know, he had been struggling death. for a long time, but that was, uh, you know when when he finally decided his life wasn't worth living anymore was was a big part of uh him accepting that not only that this had happened to his daughter but that he had for so long not believed
2: and and that had been years when you say for so long he had not believed and then and and I think Kyle had moved to Chicago you tell a very the narrative of this is is so clear because you you when you're reading start by believing you're, you're um the reader uh, this one reader um was you're able to see what reckoning with what happened to you what it, the toll it must take and then for kyle she actually um decided to keep remembering what happened to her because it was the truth and she wasn't believed for so long
3: Yeah, she had to, um, you know, keep repeating these things, keep reminding herself so she didn't. Get gaslighted, so she didn't get convinced that maybe she had made it up. She over and over again repeated this to herself because she hoped that one day she would have an opportunity to to find a way to actually bring him to justice and speak up about it. And um, she tried a couple times before uh, 2016 to to raise red red flags or warnings about this. And finally, she saw an opportunity. And, and because she had lived with it in a very present way for so long, um, she was quickly able to to add her voice to the the growing chorus of people speaking up. Kyle's uh, victim impact statement was, I mean, ev- everybody
0: who got up, you know, we have mad respect for them uh, for for saying w- what they said. But my goodness, when Kyle Stevens got up and spoke and, and put herself in that moment, she talked about how when she was first sexually abused by Larry Nasser she still had her baby teeth. Her favorite book, her favorite TV show was Clifford the Big Red Dog. And... You know that hit home for me. I remember reading Clifford the Big Red Dog books to my kids, and I remember the you know the TV show, and you, you just your heart broke. I mean, your heart just absolutely broke um, for this for this woman.
2: It, it, it seems to me that the trial, the the heart was com- breaking and breaking and breaking. Um, yet, John, you you speak about how this is this is also an inspiring. This is a story that's inspiring because I of think the survivors. So. Yeah, I mean, look. W- before we and how the women are taking the power back. Little women, l- like girls, grow up to be strong women. Sure, and those Was are Kyle's Kyle? words. Those are so Kyle's, that, words. Kyle's oh.
3: words.
0: Yeah, look when we when we were kicking around the idea for the book, I Dan and I both were first time authors. We had not written a book, so we reached out to people who had and. You know, I reached out to a co- – we both reached out to colleagues at ESPN and beyond, and uh, one of my ESPN colleagues asked me, why do you want to write about something so dark? And that really made me wrestle with that question. And But the reality is I don't think it's a dark story. I think it is an incredibly inspiring story. And you look at the way uh, people like Kyle Stevens have picked themselves up and served as incredibly powerful examples to girls and young women everywhere – You look at the way uh, a number of these survivors have now worked in their professional lives. Now work in their professional lives to help survivors reach better outcomes. How so many of them have lobbied different state legislatures to get more favorable child sex abuse laws on the books. How former national team members who were abused by sexually abused by Larry Nassar have gone before Congress and helped change federal laws. I mean, the world has literally changed because of this group of women. That is an inspiring story. I mean, Larry Nassar and what he did—that does that. Yeah, that was sickening and it was dark.
2: It needs but, to be stopped and also needs to be understood, like how that could happen. And that's what you're showing in this book. Yeah, like, but it's not the only this, story. This it's no, it's not. It's not the the most important story.
3: Yeah, no, I think in, in when thinking about how we wanted to structure the book, right? We saw we broke it up into three sections, and I, you you mentioned the word power earlier, and that, that stuck out to me because that was one of like the you know if you wanted to distill it down to what we really wanted to focus on in each one is that the first section is all about how the power structure was built in gymnastics and how Larry Nasser came to power, and the second, sec- second section is all about how he used that to to manipulate women and, and abuse women for years and years, and then the third section, which is the, the part that we most enjoyed writing, I think, and that hopefully people will, will make it through the dark parts to get to the third section where it's really about those women finally taking back that power and standing up and, and how hard it was to wrestle that power back from the institutions that had it for so long.
2: Yeah, By the time you get to section three, I've got to say, I was like... Yes, and no. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, you
3: yeah. Thank you for sticking with it. It gets dark at times, for well, sure. Well, but.
2: that's the thing too. Is like because it is. It is. A, it is dark. It is dark. But, but it's necessary. You have to show to how hard it was to exactly. understand
3: what an effort it was to, to take that back take back that power and understand how hard and how courageous and how much perseverance it took to get to that point. And I don't think you can under- fully understand that without really digging into the details of, of what life was like for them for a long time.
2: No one will give back power. No one will want their, their marketing strategy not to be showing their best light. They, they won't just give that away, will they? Okay. No,
0: I mean look, I think this is a this is a case study in what institutions do when uh when there's a potentially damaging story brewing and what they do is they try to contain it uh, as as best they can for as long as they can.
2: Even if for example MSU had the example of Penn State yep. happening when the the president Simon uh, was still like the former president Simon. Yeah, um, she was. She
3: was working with the NCAA as the Jerry Sandusky scandal was was unfolding at Penn State. when the, John was there covering that, and um, so Luanna Simon was was very aware of uh, the potential problems of not speaking up and not um, trying to to tackle a problem with full transparency. If you see and full something,
2: effort. say something. Exactly. Was, yeah, and, and we should. Point I'm out, doing. like
0: on the on the, the the day we're recording this interview is also the day that the trial is beginning for Kathy Clagis, the former gymnastics coach for Michigan State University. Jury selection starting today. And this is a coach who back in nineteen ninety seven, Larissa Boyce, a former youth level gymnast, and another gymnast both told Kathy Clagus, they say th- they told Kathy Clagis that they were penetrated by Larry Nasser during Pur- purported treatment sessions, and she dismissed their claim. She didn't even report. She didn't even report what they told her to their parents. She didn't report it to anybody with the school, and now she's accused of lying about it, and she's on trial. Um, so, yeah, there's there there are just there were so many opportunities along the way uh, where Larry Nasser could have been stopped and wasn't stopped. And it comes down to the fact that people didn't believe these survivors.
2: Let's talk about the, the the writing also, the shared writing, because you're co-authors of the book. And John, I think you mentioned a little earlier, you looked to Dan and you said, you spoke to Kyle. So how did the research go? Can you talk through a little bit about, um, first of all, how you did the research for the book and then how that translated into the writing and what it's like to co-write a book, the world's largest the Google Doc. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's funny you mention that because so Dan and I had we had we wrote a piece for ESPN.com, which also was in ES, ESPN the magazine. Um, God rest its soul. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's awesome. No longer in print. It's yeah. No longer in print. Uh, but but that was in June of 2018. That article came out uh, I think a couple of days before the first sentence. Right here. around the same time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know. I it was just an effortless like we, we there was never, a, a, you know, a, there was never a tense word between us. It was always OK, man, you write this section. I'll write this section. So, but
2: how would you do it? Because would it be because, Dan, you spoke with Kyle. Would you take the lead on that section of yeah. the narrative? So from and the then,
3: mechanic standpoint, yeah. me being here in Michigan, um, I was able to establish some relationships more here with, with, with local people here, and, and John had some great ins and some great sources that that he was able to establish uh, with, with a lot of the national team gymnasts. And it wasn't quite that clean of a split; like we each had people we talked to, and and like we didn't want to both be bugging the same people because this is not a, a fun topic for anybody to talk about, right? So we wanted to be very respectful and make sure we were being efficient with everyone else's time.
2: And you weren't co- like able to necessarily coordinate going places together to yeah. be in this same well the trial not all the time yeah i mean
3: yeah we were occasionally we would be together in the same place and interviewing people at the same time but we also split up the workload and um yeah we would write the stuff we knew best and then circle back and we'd trade it back and forth and someone else would we you know if i wrote something john would read it and that his perspective and put you know make sure that we had a consistent voice and do the second rewrite of it and um it it ended up working out pretty smoothly for the most part on that front
0: yeah and i I don't know if I wouldn't have gotten to this place anyway, but it just so happened that in the summer of 2016, I was working on a story about violent hazing, uh, um, it, particularly in male high school athletics. And the, one of the attorneys who represented a victim of a, of a horrible hazing incident uh, worked in the same law firm as John Manley, who wound up being Jamie's 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 attorney, and he wound up representing more than 180 survivors of Larry Nassar, including many of the high profile former Olympians like Ali Raisman and Mikhail Maroney and Jordan Weber and right on down the line. And uh, so it was there was a a connection there from the outset um, that kind of helped me report that end of the story. And so between that, between Dan's presence in Michigan and, you know, look, I spent a lot of Time in the great state of Michigan as well. You know, <laughs> yes. One of the more frustrating yeah. things, frankly, and this of course, speaks to the culture of uh, silence. Uh, the we in early attempts to understand more about John Getter, who we spoke about earlier, and his it just what's
2: wh- his, what's his um, what was his coach? Twist the, Stars USA twist,
0: Gymnastics, okay. right outside of, of Lansing,
2: and that's where Jordan Weaver came out. That's of?
0: where jo- he was. Jordan Weaver's coach. He was the head coach of the 2012 team in London that won gold. Um, he was recognized as one of the best gymnastics coaches in the country, the place where you if you had a a, a kid who was on the track to potentially get a scholarship uh, at a school or you know reach elite status. You you sent your kid to John Gedert if you could,
2: and yet you have a photograph of um, like three three gymnasts pushing his Corvette as part of a strengthening. The stories stories about
0: Gedert are they've just become the stuff of legend. I mean, the guy was uh, they're they're infamous. He he would routinely body shame gymnasts. He put them through these intense conditioning intense conditioning drills. He pushed them to the breaking point and beyond in terms of their training. Uh, He made crass comments about their breasts he you know one gymnast says that larry nasser i mean forgive me for being graphic but was massaging her bare breasts with ice john Gettert walks into the training room sees it and makes a comment about her you know you know he would snap their bras all i mean the list of inappropriate comments and and actions is is long uh but i can tell you that when i first started trying to find out more about john Gettert, i burned up a lot of miles on the rental car driving all, all over Michigan to try to talk to former coaches, former employees, and it was remarkable to me how many didn't want to speak about John Getter. Who, they because still of were, his
2: perceived They were power? still intimidated by him. He mm-hmm. was
0: still in his job as the as the owner and operator of Twist R's. He hadn't yet been suspended. In fact, we were the first to report in uh, January of 2018, shortly after a number of the survivors mentioned Gettert in open court in their victim impact statements. It was a short time after that that USA Gymnastics finally suspended John Gettert. But yeah, I mean, prior to that point, there were a number of people who could have come clean and they could have talked about what went on inside his gym and they wouldn't. So credit this group of women for not only the reality of the situation is they they not only exposed Larry Nassar, they exposed a lot of bad actors who enabled Larry Nassar. John Gettard being one of them. Yeah.
2: And this culture of silence, I wonder how, I, I mean, there's no way to, this is part, like this book, Start By Believing, Larry Nasser's Crimes, the Institutions That Enabled Him, and the Brave Women Who Stopped a Monster, Start By Believing. This is like, it's a cultural step. But how? how does this, does this, okay. Maybe you're not the right ones to ask about this though. <laughs> but, Far away. But yeah. well we were talking earlier, I think, about like the nineteen ninety-five book. Yes.
0: Little girls in pretty boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Little
2: girls in pretty boxes. That felt like it sent some shock waves. It did, without by listen, it caused a great stir. So now we have but that was more the book stepping out into the cultural like Malu, right? right? And then but now what we've had was there's this, the national story breaking becoming international, and now we have to start by believing the book to sort of give give a sense of the, the whole the whole story.
3: Mm-hmm. Is it, <laughs> it going to change? Is that is that yeah. where you're headed with this? Is that what you're going? With? Um, that's a great question. In some ways, I do think that from a um, from a larger population standpoint, more people understand the value. In one speaking up and trying to inspire others to speak up, and two from the the listening end, understanding that's an important. To start from a point of acknowledging and believing and, and moving forward and, and taking these claims seriously. I do think that from the, a large pool of people that more people understand why you need to take stuff seriously right away. In terms of the power structure and whether that stuff really gets through, I think that still very much remains to be seen because the, those legal battles are still being fought two years from now, uh, two years from the hearing now. and
2: It's the people in power. Yeah, too, no, no one The leadership that is still
0: Well, look, there's been a change in leadership at the top of USA Gymnastics. There was a revolving door of presidents and CEOs there for a few months. Uh, There's new leadership at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Um, USA Gymnastics has adopted new policies from the U.S. Center of Safe Sport, but there are, are a number of advocates who believe that those policies still have loopholes. Like, for example, you can massage a gymnast, but you have to massage a gymnast in an area that has observable and interruptible by another adult Uh, they there's only a recommendation that a parent give a written permission for a trainer to massage a gymnast a gymnast can travel with a uh, coach there actually are waivers that parents can sign The, the, the recommendation is that parents sign a waiver to allow a coach to travel with a minor gymnast so you can still have a situation the bottom line is you can still have a situation where an adult is alone with a minor. Mm-hmm. And whenever that happens, you're going to place minor athletes in vulnerable positions, not just in gymnastics, but in any sport. Okay. And, 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 I, and sadly, I think you're going to continue see, to see cases of abuse. The hope is you won't see massive cases of abuse on this scale where you have more than 500 people who are saying that Larry Nassar sexually assaulted them.
2: Let's talk about the title of the book, Start by Believing, um, because this, I think it comes from Detective Andrea Munford, Munford her, a note on her desk after she spoke with Rachel
3: for the Correct. first time. Right, yeah, so... It- kind of comes from two places yeah. uh so we first learned about the phrase through um hearing this story uh, about andrea munford who had it when when she spoke to rachel denholm or the first the first woman to go into the police in 2016 not the first ever but the first one in this particular case to go speak to the police and uh, andrea munford wrote down rachel's contact information on a little slip of paper and on the top of that paper the words were the words start by believing so when we found that uh, in our reporting we thought oh well you know, that makes That's a lot of sense. It, yes. it just hits the, the notes we want to hit. And then, you know, we started looking around, you know, we, Popped it in Google, and when I started looking around, it and discovered that "Start by believing" was actually a, um, a motto that was first established by the End Violence Against Women International Group, which is a, a sexual assault advocacy group and education group. And so, um, as as we picked this, we thought, well, we better make sure that this is okay. So John John reached out to uh, the leader of that group, and and they've been fantastic about supporting it and, and saying this is a great idea. And yeah, let's let's keep talking about it. And um, so, the, I mean, the motto is 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 basically to try to encourage people to come from a spot of acknowledging this this may have happened because for so long I think People look at a claim of sexual abuse skeptically for some reason different than a lot of other. If someone, if you were to walk in and say someone robbed my house last night, no one's going to think, "Oh, why are you making that up?" But for whatever reason, sexual assault had that stigma on it, and I think that a, a big part of what this group has done and a big part of this push that start by believing is to try to change that idea. Um, and so they were very gracious in saying, "Yes, please make that the title of your book. That's great." And so um, the the two things kind of converged and made for a, a convenient. Thing that we think is it quickly shares the message we're trying to get across.
0: Yeah, it, w- it would have been bad juju if they would have said no. We'd rather you not use that title.
3: Might <laughs> have had to rethink it.
0: Yeah, we would have. We, and pro- we would have because I wouldn't have wanted to walk around thinking you know that we'd sort of adopted the name of their very important campaign as a book title without their permission. But they totally bought in, and 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 more than that, Joanne Archambault is a former investigator with San Diego. Police sex crimes unit, and did that for many many years before uh, heading up End and Violence Against Women International. And uh, not only did she support the title, but she read a manuscript of our book and set us straight on a few things. I think we filtered we filtered our book through a lot of really important lenses.
2: How so? Can you talk a little bit? Yeah. About that? I mean, well, like
0: there's a, there's have? another wonderful resource that we have right at ESPN. There's a woman named Carrie Potts who uh, works in our um, PR department and. Carrie is a a senior communications executive for ESPN. She's got a big job. She's an incredibly bright lady. And she also happens to be a victim of an assault. She was assaulted overseas and uh, has become very vocal about, uh, vocal in terms of trying to assist victims of sexual assault when they're sexually assaulted away from the United States because they're oftentimes in countries where. Laws just aren't the same, the report, the the way that those crimes are reported, investigated aren't the same. Uh, And, and, you know, you're in a vulnerable enough position in this country, but if if it happens to you overseas, where law enforcement is just different, the criminal justice system is different, it can even be more daunting for victims. And so she's done a lot of important work in that area. And Carrie was very uh, gracious with her time in helping us understand things like the idea that sexual assault survivors tend not to have linear memories. They tend to have more sensory-based memories. So if we encountered a source that perhaps couldn't recall dates and times or specific events in a linear fashion, that shouldn't be necessarily a red flag for us because sexual assault survivors tend to remember things like the color of the room, a smell, a smell. Uh, more sensory-based memories, yeah. and so she sort of schooled us with respect to that. But she also read read a, a, a manuscript of our book and um, mentioned things like so. Uh, and you still see it in a lot of media reports, where where, where they will refer refer to a uh, sexual assault survivor as the accuser, and that's that's a word that that's really uh, becomes, become loaded. Yeah, in yeah some become ways. very loaded yeah. because you know the 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 survivor becomes this thing the accuser and yet the the accused is still you know in this case Dr Larry Nasser I mean,
2: it it almost feels like the the accuser is the one that's diminished. enacting or in enacting violence upon the other one that yeah. Yeah. somehow which seems yeah, like yeah. So, strangely so
0: so there were a lot we steer clear of language yeah. like that but you'll yes. still see yeah. language like that in in some you know look a lot of media outlets have gotten better as the standards of practices have have made the rounds and, I think and as stories like this as, as stories have come like out, this have come um, out exactly but
3: yeah I think one of the things that that we said early on when. Even covering it for ESPN was we, in, in any interview we do and anything we write, write we we want to make sure we don't add additional harm, right? Like that's goal one. If we can, if our reporting can help in some way, great. But let's make sure we don't do anything to make this harder for anybody. And so we spoke to a lot of people like Carrie, like the women at, and violence against women, and and at Rain and other places like that to say, hey, look, you know, this is a somewhat new subject for for me certainly for John to to a little bit less degree. You'd cover some some other hazing and abuse type of stories, but. But, um, but
2: also the gender. Yeah,
3: uh, yeah. It of yeah. wasn't
0: lost on us. Lost that us. That there was two dudes writing about overwhelmingly a group of, of girls and young women. We should note that there were actually a few male yeah. accusers in, yeah. in the more than 500 yes. uh, people who say Larry Nassar sexually assaulted them. Um, but yeah, it wasn't lost on us that there were two guys writing about this, and, and we needed to make sure we did it the right way.
3: So yeah, we we made sure to ask for help for that and we you know have people read the book and had, we talked to people before we did interviews to make sure we were doing those in a responsible way too. Um, and it was all I think we are incredibly grateful you know, not only for the the people that are in the book and the people we interviewed for but we we got help from a lot of folks that allowed us to put something together that we're happy with.
2: Well, and it seems to to your your uh, your credit um as as journalists, as writers that the people trusted you like they 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 could tell you their story and know that you listened and you believed.
3: Yeah, that that took time. I think, you know, that there was uh, some false starts along the way, too. And building that trust is really hard. And um you know, I think naturally and understandably, a lot of survivors of sexual assault aren't quick to trust anybody or you know, a couple men that they've never met before um, with those stories. And, and look, when you tell a journalist a story, you're taking a little bit of a risk. You're putting an, an incredibly personal, traumatic part of your life in the hands of somebody else who's going to go and tell that story to a whole bunch of people that aren't going to know you through any other way than this story. And I think that's something that was always on our mind when we wrote about it was that this is a big responsibility to make sure we, that we did that properly and did their stories justice.
0: Yeah. Sarah Klein, great example of that, right? I mean, this is a, a woman who, when I first met her, she wanted to remain anonymous. She she didn't want her then two-year-old daughter to grow up one day, Google her name, and find that she was associated with the Larry Nassar case. Uh and it, it took months. It took months for her to engage with me it, in terms of a discussion. It took months for her to actually agree to let us report her story. Initially, we re- reported her story without using her name, but now she changed jobs. She's a victim. Uh, she's a a lawyer representing child sex, sex abuse victims. Uh, she's testify before different state legislative committees to try to get laws changed. And she's very public and and out there. But yeah, I mean, that it took months to build a a rapport with Sarah to the point where she would trust us to even let her even let us tell her story anonymously, you know, Uh, so it just takes time and it takes time building that trust and it takes time engaging, meeting people where they're prepared to be met.
2: And, and telling the story from there, their story. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that was something that, that we, oh, this was always their stories and we yes. had an opportunity to tell them. I think we tried to, to keep a focus on that. Absolutely.
2: Thanks for writing this book. Well, thanks, thanks for, for having for us. Writing. We appreciate it. And thanks. For, yeah. Thanks for talking today too. Um, John Barr and Dan Murphy start by believing Larry Nasser's crimes, the institutions that enabled him and the brave women who stopped a monster. Out with Hatchet Books, I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks to Jason for engineering. Thanks to y'all for listening out there. Until next time.
1: Put on your face. face shut up and smile don't spread your legs. i could do that but no one knows me Them all away. If I let them hear all I have to say, I can't keep.
2: Thanks for listening in. You've been listening to a recorded conversation with T. Hetzel, the host of Living Writers and Guests, John Barr and Dan Murphy, who co-authored the book Start by Believing, Larry Nassar's crimes, the institutions that enabled him, and the brave women who stopped a monster. We're going to take it over to the sports show in just a second, so please stay tuned and have a good evening.
1: Radio is king of the media.
4: I suppose our youngsters would
1: say cornball or square. And now, CBN Radio brings you... what all the all the broadcast uh, uh, media can do you give them a sense of
0: flavor.
4: It's all vegetable. It's digestible. It's delicious
1: and nutritious. Life-sized and ready to eat. It's made with real egg formula. And here's a nice-looking record packaging from New York. WCBN. America's ace of the airways. That This instrument is good for nothing but to entertain, amuse, and insulate. And we will soon see that the whole struggle is lost. And Believing that radio has the responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia. Oh!
4: WCBN FM Ann Arbor WCBN FM WCBN FM Ann Arbor WCBN FM Ann Arbor
1: Arbor. A very pleasant, peaceful feeling. You relax deeper and deeper. Each downward count of my voice, ten. Relaxing deeper, 9. Letting the body gently begin to sink deeper, 8. 8.3. Yes, it's like a a push-button radio, you see. 24 hours a day. Whether you like it or not... Oh, we're limited to a 500-mile radius now, but we're working to extend that limit. Wash, 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 wash your hands to keep them
4: Welcome to the Daily Sports Support here in WCBN FMNR 88.3. I am Andrew Miller, hosting with my main man, Charlie Brigham and Adam Bressler. How are you guys doing uh, today? I was having a good day until you played that song, Aww. and it just. I didn't like it at all. But we were having it's been a great day, depending on who you ask. Depending on who you yeah. ask, that was so hype when we got that announcement. Uh, it was anticipated all day. Uh, in case for those who do not know, uh, Michigan University, of Michigan has decided to suspend classes for the next two days as uh, teachers work to retool their their curriculum for online uh, for the online versions. So for the next. For the rest of the semester, University of Michigan students will not be heading the classes until finals. Uh, this has been a long way. Michigan, I think, is the last of the Big Ten schools to do this. Is that right? With a uh, with a coronavirus in like Even in their state, Nebraska
1: standard. canceled. Even no
4: uh, with a with a coronavirus in the in the state, like in Michigan has state coronavirus. What? Nebraska has a coronavirus. I think Nebraska's been canceled. I don't know. Yeah. Dana wasn't here right now, so it's hard to yeah. really. But this could this could be just a total uh made-up story by me but uh yeah michigan is uh was the my brother goes to michigan state uh he has uh had school off since yesterday so he is on his way back to home right now so that is all anyone can talk about but you know
3: right now it